0: listening to expand your horizons the podcast for english language teachers and wanderlust indulgers this is lauren and shannon teacher training duo of teflhorizons.com each week we bring you teaching advice travel tips and inspiring stories from around the globe here's to making this big world a little smaller by connecting esl teachers everywhere to this week's episode of Expand Your Horizons, the TEPL Horizons podcast. We're really glad you're joining us today because we have a great episode for you. We are very pleased to bring you our first interview. Today, we're talking to Teresa Troyer about her experience teaching English in the United States and also in Vietnam. Teresa got her bachelor's degree in gender and sexuality and international relations and her master's in gender, sexuality, and culture. After finishing school, she ran her own company for a number of years before she decided that she was ready for a career change and a life change. So today she's sitting down with us to tell us about her experience getting a teaching certification and then embarking on a new career as an ESL teacher, starting in Washington, D.C., and then transitioning overseas to teach in Vietnam. So I'm Shannon. I'm here with Lauren. Hi. And we're here with Teresa. Hi, Teresa. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here, and you are our first interview, so we're really excited. Woohoo! (laughs) All right, Uh, so let's just jump right into it. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into this field?
1: Yeah, so I came about teaching in a very um, non-straight manner, I suppose you can say. I have a master's degree, and it has nothing to do with teaching. And I owned my own company for a long time and it had nothing to do with teaching and I burnt out and (laughs) didn't really know what I wanted to do, which I think a lot of people experience. And I knew that I wanted to travel abroad and the easiest way to do that is to teach ESL. But Mm -hmm. I really didn't want to go and live abroad and teach without any sort of educational training in how to teach. Just because you're a native speaker doesn't mean that you know how to teach it.
0: Yes, so I took as my we've discussed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I took my cell phone, and uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun, not just the program itself, but learning how to teach and then teaching, and uh, it sort of just expanded from there.
0: All right, awesome. So you said that you got a certification before you started teaching. Yeah. Um, what certification did you get, and how did you decide on that particular program?
1: Yeah, so I have a CELTA, um, which is the Cambridge English language teaching for adults certification program. And I ended up taking that one because I did a ton of research and pretty much everything I looked at suggested that CELTA certifications were respected and would get you better jobs at a better pay than a TEFL course that might be slightly cheaper. Um, TEFL, it doesn't have Firstly, it's not an actual certification, it's a type of certification that you can get. And exactly. it isn't Yeah, it isn't monitored. So there's no way to say that your TEFL course is any better or worse than another TEFL course, but Salta, it is monitored, it is regulated. People know internationally that if you have a Celta that you've received a certain level of education and that was something that I really wanted, both for my future hiring prospects and also because I wanted to go into teaching with a certain level of knowledge. And I knew that I was going to get that on a CELTA.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's so much what we've talked about in our first couple of episodes. So um, great that you did all of that research and found similar information. Um,
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. What was your experience like on the CELTA course? How would you describe it?
1: Oh, man. Um, I am like incredibly privileged and fortunate to say that I am very, very well-educated. But my salsa course was actually the best educational experience I've ever had. Oh, wow. I learned more in the four weeks of my salsa course than I had pretty much ever before in an educational program. I learned more in my salsa than I did in my master's degree, point blank. I learned more in my SELTA than I feel like I really did over the four years of my undergraduate. And that's, that's a little sad, four weeks to four years. <laughs> so it was... It was definitely a really fantastic, positive experience to me. I went in knowing that I had no idea what I was doing, and I felt feeling a very solid grasp on how to teach, specifically how to teach English language, and that I had a foundation of confidence and knowledge that I could build on. Moving as I actually entered
2: the teaching force. Wow, that's great. That reinforces a lot of what we said in our last episode. Actually,
0: that's true. Yeah. So this is maybe kind of a tough question to summarize, but you made it pretty clear that it's um, the difference between those four weeks versus four years of other programs that you've done was huge. What do you think it was about the CELTA course that that gave it that kind of stark contrast, like that made it that much more effective?
1: Yeah, CELTA is a very practical program. So when you're taking... Your philosophy 101 class or your biology class in university they're not always practical courses you might learn the the history of whatever it is but you're not necessarily going to know how to do it that's ultimately a lot of what grad school is it's teaching you how to do the thing that you now have all of the theoretical knowledge about whereas your salsa course is we're going to teach you the theory but we're going to teach you that practice so it's not just reading about it it's we're going to tell you and you're actually going to do it. And if you don't do it right, that's OK. We're going to make you do it again and again and again and again <laughs> until you get it right. <laughs> so oh, no. it, it sets you up with a lot of confidence that I think you don't get in a more traditional classroom setting um, for a very short period, over a very short period of time.
2: Do you think, is there anything, anything that you wish you'd known before coming into a CELTA course?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I really wish I had studied grammar more before I walked in. Um, And that's not something that, at the time, I really thought about very much. It's an English course, and I was like, yeah, I'm a native speaker, I'm not gonna worry about it. Wrong decision, (laughs) not a good choice. And actually, one thing that I tell people going into their CELTA now, because I really recommend it to teachers who get a TEFL and then really want to go further in the field, is to look up pre-intermediate, intermediate, intermediate, higher-intermediate grammar lessons that you would be giving your students and take them yourself. Because that is going to give you the practical knowledge and the terms that you need in order to then teach the lesson in your CELTA. And it seems like such a silly thing, grammar, but I spent a lot of time worrying about not knowing the grammar that I needed that I could have spent on everything else that goes into a CELTA, namely learning how to teach. And that that was unfortunate for me. But I do think that is something that I I wish I had known going in.
2: Well, I think that our listeners might be uh, surprised to hear that because you are fairly well-spoken, you have a master's degree. So what do you think makes grammar on the CELTA different than uh, the grammar that you would need, for example, to write a master's level level, uh, essay?
1: That's a really good question. It's about being a native speaker. You as a native speaker don't generally learn grammar the way that a second language, third language, whatever language learner is going to. You know how to use the present simple, you know how to use articles, but you don't know what those are. I'm going to assume (laughs) that a lot of people listening to this are going the what, the huh? And that's just because you don't need to know that grammar language. As a native speaker, it's something that you're taught, you know, when you're two and learning how to speak. I don't know when children learn how to speak, but I'm just going to go with toddler age. Um, and, And so that is something that you do need to actually put a little bit more time and effort into as a native speaker is studying your own grammar. And I will say, if you are looking into later doing a master's degree or later going and doing your bachelor's, if you haven't already, this will help you with your papers. Because I've looked back on essays and my thesis that I wrote in undergrad in my master's and gone, oh, my grammar was not as good as it could have been. And now I know why.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. That's really interesting. And just to go back for a second, I love the piece of advice you gave about looking up um, different level grammar lessons for students and actually doing them yourself. I think that's super helpful.
1: Yeah, it's especially, I think, more helpful than sort of Googling grammar book because a lot of those (laughs) grammar books, which is what I did before myself. It was like the B verb and A. And I was like, yeah, I, I get it. So it doesn't feel challenging. And then you don't look any farther. So right. looking up a higher intermediate, looking up an intermediate, that's going to sort of be like, that's your wake up call of, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Exactly. So I should learn this before I do this intensive four week course where I won't have the brain capacity to think about anything else. Hmm.
0: Exactly. It's sort of the crash course or like the eye opener of figuring out what you don't know and what your students are going to be actually doing in your class that you're going to have to be guiding them through. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Okay. So just after you finished your CELTA course, I know that you started teaching locally. Um, You got a job at a language school in DC. What was that like?
1: That was quite the experience for me. Um, uh, On a very practical level, I really didn't think that I would need to be working extra jobs. Um, I went in and sort of thought, like, it's a job, and it's a full-time teaching job, so why would I not get paid, or why would I not have the hours to, you know, make a living? So that was shocking to realize, like, oh, I'm <laughs> going to go and teach in the mornings, and then I'm going to get home, and I'm, I'm going to need to do more work, um, be that a contract, be that another teaching job, be that, you know, retail, whatever it is. So that was really shocking to me. But in the classroom, what was interesting was that um, they're very multicultural classrooms. I taught adults and I taught at, as you said, a, a private language school. And that means that all of those adults were there on education visas. So there was really, really, really high motivation for these adults to get the work done and to participate in class. So that was really great as a new person to come in and not really know what I was doing to a certain extent, you know, feel like I did. But very different walking from a CELTA course into a three-hour class and then mm-hmm. having this group of students be like, no, we, we want you to succeed because we have to succeed or we get kicked out of the country. So that was great. <laughs> but Yeah. A yeah, students... lot of different. Right
0: there. Yeah. What were your yes? students like? Like what kinds of um, age groups, nationalities, like what kind of people were you working with?
1: Oh, yeah. Big, big gaps. Um, my youngest student was 18 because I taught adults. My oldest student was actually 73. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Huge age gaps. Um, yeah. And then I taught, um, I was in DC at the time, as you said. So I taught a lot of uh, Saudi Arabian students and I taught a lot of Spanish speakers, but from all over Latin America. So even if they're speaking, you know, they're all speaking Spanish. It's the same language. They're not necessarily going to be on the same field. So you can't necessarily rely on, oh, well, like in, in Mexico that's like, well, none of us are from Mexico. So I don't know. That's not an answer. Um, so that was really interesting for me, but it was also really, really helpful. Um, I think the, the hardest part was the age difference, though, mm-hmm. because an 18 year old is very different than a 44 year old with three kids.
2: Yeah. yeah so that, absolutely.
0: Was, that was interesting. Yeah. For sure. So aside from some of the practical things you mentioned in terms of the job, not really being as full time as it seemed in terms of income, um, mm-hmm. and then also the student's motivation, which sounded like it was a good thing what should somebody expect if they're going into a teaching job like at a private language school like kaplan or ec or something in the us
1: um expect to have to build the program yourself to a certain extent Mm -hmm. um these schools all have textbooks that they use um kaplan's textbooks are kaplan itself ec has their own type of textbook that they use that is from another company But ultimately, this is a three hour lesson in general that you need a plan from start to scratch on your own and that you really don't have a ton of guidance for. You can rely on your director of studies to a certain degree, but ultimately this is your job and you need to be doing it yourself. So a lot of things, some practical advice that I got at the very beginning that was really helpful was to really build in extra time activities. Um, And build them at the end of your class. Because Mm -hmm. if you have a three-hour class, you're going to have a 90-hour session, a 15-minute break, and then another 90-minute session. And if you put your extra time in the first half and then find out in the second half that, oh, no, this is taking way too long, you're not going to get to everything. So build your extra time in at the end and make Mm -hmm. sure that you have at least 15 to 20 minutes of it, both in like little five-minute chunks and in a larger 15, 20-minute project so that you can really decide on your feet at the end of the class, like, oh, we're, you know, six minutes till the end of class. I don't want to make them do this 15 minute project, but I do have this five minute game that we can play. So that is a very piece of practical advice that I got that was really helpful for me. Um, As was relying very heavily on your students to submit content to you. I didn't know what they wanted to talk about. And so I went in and I told my students, I don't know what you want to talk about. What are you interested in? And we made an entire lesson out of figuring out each other's interests. And then I took that information and I applied that to later lessons so that I knew for a fact that they were going to be motivated to do it because this is something that they talked about. You don't have to do it alone. You can rely on your fellow teachers and your director of studies, but you can also rely on your students. They want
2: you to succeed as much as you want to succeed. That's actually great advice uh, for those who are listening. Um, if you are interested in doing that, pulling your class as to what they want, um, or need in a class, that's called a needs analysis. Um, and you can find a lot of information about that online. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true. That's really great adv- advice, Teresa. I was wondering, as you were speaking about your experience in DC, how that compared to, uh, starting out in another country. So we know, um, that you got your first teaching job abroad in mm-hmm. Vietnam, um was it very your first week's teaching were they very similar or different from your experience here in the U.S.?
1: Completely different absolutely completely different in the U.S. I was teaching adults in Vietnam I was teaching children in the U.S. I was a part-time employee in Vietnam I was not only teaching but I was the director of my center so it was a huge difference in every single way. (laughs)
0: Yeah yeah um Okay, so we'll definitely get into that. How did you decide on Vietnam, first of all?
1: It was a very random choice for me. I had originally intended to work in Japan, which didn't end up working out for a number of different reasons, um, not really related to teaching at all. And so I applied to everywhere else in Southeast Asia, just (laughs) on the off chance. And Vietnam was the first place that got back to me. And I went, well, you know, I'm not really doing anything here in the States that... I couldn't be doing there. So why not? Sounds good. I didn't do enough research <laughs> before I went, but that's part of the experience It's just to sort of go and figure out what, what
0: happens afterwards. Yeah. Kind of taking that leap of faith and diving in, assuming that you've done, you know, enough research that you feel comfortable with the opportunity. Absolutely. Great. Okay. Um, so yeah, you mentioned some big differences. So maybe it's helpful to just kind of like walk through what your, your first job in Vietnam was like.
1: Yeah, um, so I worked at an English after-school center, an English academy in Vietnam, which meant that we were teaching from 5.30 until 8.45 at night, and then on weekends from 8 a.m. till 8.45 at night. Not all of those hours, your schedule sort of shifted, um, which is something that happens in Vietnam a lot, is you end up having completely different schedules than your fellow teachers because you need to be able to stack the classes in a proper way so that everybody has your full time. But also, that there are enough classes to go around, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was also teaching between the ages of technically it was supposed to be four, but there were some two year olds and wow. some three year olds. Yeah, all the way up to my oldest student was 17, but realistically, most of the students were sort of around the nine to 13 year old range. Wow. So, again, was that, very
2: different. Was that, a, was that your choice or was that you just feeling a need in Vietnam? Because here in the US, you said that you worked with adults
1: not really my choice. Um, it's a lot harder in Vietnam to find a financially stable gig with adults. It's possible. Um, but most of those jobs are either private study, which has a very sort of wobbly pay. Um, and I don't suggest for people who have just started in the country because you really don't understand what English teachers get paid there and sort of the culture and whatnot around pay. Um, so if you've been there a while, that's something that you can do, but it, you're new, I don't suggest it. And then there are a few English academies in Vietnam that do focus on adults, but those have changing schedules every month. So one month you might work 25 hours and the next month you might work two. Uh And that's not, it's a very big difference. So it it can be very, very stressful to only teach adults. And realistically, if you are going to go to Vietnam, you're going to be teaching children.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a good thing to point out. Yeah, Yeah, a really good
2: thing. And how did you find teaching children different from teaching adults?
1: There were sort of three big major differences. Um, Motivation, obviously, or the lack thereof. Kids don't want to be in class after school after they've already been in class for, you know, however many hours Mm -hmm. at the behest of their parents Mm -hmm. or on weekends. Um, they don't really see the point in learning this language that they might not ever use and that their parents don't speak and that their friends don't speak. So it's it's a big motivation challenge. It's also a big behavioral challenge. Adults might talk out during class, but they're not going to, like, stand up on your table and, like, scream and, like, <laughs> dive bomb other students. <laughs> so that's a big difference. Um, and then, um, again, content. So the needs uh, analysis that you were talking about, that's, a, that's pretty easy to do with adults, even if... They don't have a lot of language skills. I taught beginner, elementary, pre-intermediate, and intermediate in D.C. And in Vietnam, all of my students were sort of pre-intermediate or lower. Right. And children just don't have the same breadth of experience to draw from that an adult does. Right. So mm-hmm. you can ask an adult, you know, what's your favorite memory? And they'll be able to tell you that. A child might have only been on a planet for four years. They don't know what a memory is hard to communicate that <laughs> with them so those are some some major differences
0: right like the level of analysis I guess and sort of self-awareness and self-analysis is going to be very different it's not going to be like oh well here's a list of five topics that I'm interested in and you know in which I would like to have better vocabulary it's like I like things that are fun <laughs> I don't like things that are yeah, really fun. yeah. and
1: under the sort of middle school age children don't I'm walking on glass here around people who have kids, but um, children don't have their own opinion to a certain extent. All of their tastes come from their older siblings or their parents or other children at school. It's not like your you know, seven-year-old is going online and looking up like, I wanna listen to Rage Against the Machine. Unless you have <laughs> told them that Rage Against the Machine is a good band don't know that that exists and they don't know how to look it up. Right. So that also is a problem. Mm-hmm. um where you know what's your favorite movie pokemon why i don't know
2: it's fun because <laughs> everyone cool. else is watching it right do you right, feel exactly. did you have access to resources um mostly in vietnam you are not really
1: going to have access to additional resources unless you yourself have access to them so i paid for subscriptions to A lot of different ESL services, ESL Library, One Stop English, both I heavily recommend if you're working with children, um, more One Stop English, but most of the other teachers there didn't have those, didn't have access to that. And then Vietnam is an edutainment country, especially to children. So you as an English teacher, your primary job is to entertain these kids and do that through language learning. And that means that the resources that you do have access to are how to make it fun, not necessarily how to most effectively teach the language that you are attempting to teach. Mm -hmm. So yes and no.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. So um, aside from just the teaching, I think we'll come back to that in a moment, but what was your daily life like in Vietnam? So where were you living in particular and what was sort of your day-to-day living like?
1: Yeah, um, so for the first three months, I lived in a city outside of Hanoi called Bắc Ninh. Um, And that's a sort of mid-sized town in Vietnam. It's got 250,000 people, but it's not really considered a city of Vietnam. Uh, Difference in sizes in Asia. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was very small and also very Korean. So that was a very unique experience in Vietnam and not really comparable to living in other small cities. And then for the majority of the time that I was there, I lived in Hanoi, which is the northern capital and the second biggest city compared to Ho Chi Minh, which is in the south, or Saigon. Sort of just randomly, not entirely sure. Have not been able to figure out why they call it Ho Chi Minh versus Saigon. And nobody has been able to explain that to me. (laughs) But um, living in Hanoi and in Vietnam in general, as an English teacher, you can live very, very lavishly. So English teachers make exponentially more than Vietnamese people. An average, a a good pay in Vietnam might be 7 million dong, which is like a hundred something dollars um, or 300 something dollars a month. And the average English teacher pay is going to be more between 25 million and 60 million. So you can save an extreme amount of money while also eating out every single night, which is something that pretty much everybody does. It's actually cheaper to eat out than it is to eat at home Uh, Hmm. while going out partying every single day if you want to, while taking really lavish vacations, um, while traveling a lot. So in, in terms of that, those are sort of the positive bits of living in Vietnam, especially if you have debt. It's a really great place to go and save that while also not compromising on your lifestyle. On the other hand, it is a very dangerous country. Um, it's not dangerous in the sense of like, physical violence. It's very rare in Vietnam, actually. It's a very safe country. But driving is very dangerous, and you pretty much need to be able to drive if you are living there. By driving, I mean driving a motorcycle or a moped mm. or a scooter of some storm. Um, the food quality is very low. So eating the same vegetable that you might get in the United States, Canada, Europe, is going to have significantly less nutrients than in, in Vietnam. So that, that's unfortunate. And then um, health care is really affordable, but really not up to not only Western standards, but the standards of other countries in the same region. So it's, it's sort of a pro and con. Um, but your daily life is, is sort of upper middle class. Um, you know, you, you go to work, and you do your job, and then you get to go out to a restaurant and go and do all this sort of very fun stuff with um, your friends. If you are living in the foreign district, if you are living in the Vietnamese area, um, you're going to have to try a lot harder to meet people and make friends. And a lot of that's going to be based on learning the language, which is one of the most difficult languages to learn. So Vietnam sort of exists on this A or B option pathway. at, at all. everything that you're going to do in Vietnam is, well, it's this way, or it's completely different in this other way. <laughs> and not a lot of middle ground.
0: Interesting. Uh, Did you find it fairly easy to find a community there of people, either of teachers or of other expats or of locals?
1: Um, It's easier to find an expat community than a Vietnamese community. Most Vietnamese people do not speak English. So the Vietnamese people that you will hang out with are either going to be people who teach at the same school as you or you are going to learn Vietnamese or already know Vietnamese. Um, it is a lot easier to find expat community, especially in Vietnam. If you go to Hanoi, um, Te Ho is the expat area. And we used to joke that that was a college campus. And it's where all of the white people are <laughs> and <laughs> all of the expats in general. But you walk around and you're like, oh, this is, this is just where the foreigners exist. Uh, So in that sense, it can be really, really easy. And the other sense is like, well, it kind of depends on what you are looking for when you go abroad. Are you looking to go and and hang out with other foreigners? Or are you looking to go and integrate into the culture of the place where you're actually going? And that's a lot harder to do. Um, It's also, it, it is important to note that depending on where you work in Vietnam and English Academy, like I was talking about earlier, or an actual private school, um, you're going to find a very distinct divide in the type of people who have those jobs. So English academies tend to attract more like backpackers and a little bit shady, but people who buy their TEFLs online. <laughs> and uh, you know, a more like party crowd, Whereas private schools are going to attract a little bit more people who have their CELTA, people who are pretty serious about the job that they're doing. Um, but equally, it's harder to make friends with those people because they have lives and a lot of them have family. And um, so, again, it's it's a very A or B situation.
2: Yeah.
1: And what was your favorite part of
2: uh, being in Vietnam?
1: Um, my easy answer is bun cha, which is a Hanoi specialty um, dish that they have. It's really just in Hanoi and sort of the surrounding areas. So if you're in Ho Chi Minh, I'm you're not going to get it. But... Um, it's absolutely phenomenal. It's much better than pho. I'm mm. saying it. Go in there. Um, <laughs> hey, cool. yeah. yeah. Uh, but also you, again, I was talking about earlier being able to live very lavishly for not a lot of money. That's great. I uh, come from a background that does not have a ton of money in it. So suddenly being able to sort of like buy whatever I wanted and eat whatever I wanted, whatever I wanted, that was really fantastic for me while also saving a lot of money. And then, of course, you're in Vietnam, Southeast Asia, it's so easy to travel to anywhere else in Southeast Asia. Um, For example, I spent a week in Taiwan, and it only cost me about $400. And that was with, like, a lot of shopping. And I missed my first flight and had to buy a second flight. So Uh, those are sort of things where if you miss your flight in the United States, you're not going. You're going to stay at home, and you're going to be at Right. In Vietnam, it was like, well, I'll just Uh, buy a new ticket.
0: Wow, okay. that was great. Um, Just quickly, what was the name of the dish that you mentioned again, and what is in it?
1: Uh, Bun cha, so it's B-U-N and then space B-H-A, and it's a noodle dish, so it has uh, those rice noodles, the really thin white ones, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's probably pork, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure, (laughs) Um, like fried pork, like balls, but they've been flattened into sort of a patty and um, then a lot of different herbs. And I actually tried to look up all of the herbs that were in it, and I didn't know what half of them were. Um, But it's kind of like a cilantro-type thing, bean sprouts, and it's technically a dipping noodle. So the noodles come on a plate, and then the broth and the pork and all the herbs come in a bowl, and you pick up the noodles and you dip them in the broth, and then you eat it, and it is 100% fantastic. I think you can get it in the United States. I doubt it's as good, but it's worth a shot if you can try it because it is delicious.
0: Nice. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Um, anything that you would say was maybe not your favorite part of the experience?
1: Yeah. Um, just the health risk of um, living in Vietnam. This is not something that people want to talk about, but if you live in Vietnam, you're likely to have intestinal distress to some degree or another, mm-hmm. pretty much for your entire time there. And you need to take an anti-parasite pill every three to six months. Um, and that's not the most fun thing to have to deal with, but, um, well, and then on as well, it's again, incredibly dangerous to drive. You really are risking your life every single time you get on the back of a bike or you drive a bike, but you know, you get to drive a bike and that's phenomenally fun. And you can take trips sort of everywhere that you want to on that bike. Um, and then, uh, just in general, again, like food standards, safety standards, they're just sort of not up to, to what we would consider clean. So my, my horror moment in Vietnam was I was eating a bowl of noodles and a live cockroach crawled out. Oh, and I was no. just like, well, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> 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 but I'm, I'm over this. But you sort of expect dead cockroaches. And you don't really worry about it. You just sort of pick them out of your food. I really wouldn't suggest going there if you're just, if I'm being honest or scared of bugs. Good to know.
0: As someone with a bug phobia, that's good to know. (laughs) Maybe
1: maybe not the one.
0: Yeah, completely understandable. Um, Okay, great. So one more thing kind of about your uh, work experience. So you mentioned that you were working as the director, actually, of one of the schools uh, where you were stationed or based. Um, How Mm -hmm. did that work? Because from the rest of the conversation, we know that You had just recently finished your CELTA certification, so that seems like a pretty fast trajectory from getting your first teaching job abroad to also having this position as a school director.
1: Yeah, it is, Um, which says something about the quality of teachers in Vietnam, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Vietnam is not a destination point for English teachers. If you have your CELTA, if you have a a, a Tafel Masters, it's just not really a place that people look at and go, oh, yes, let me go there. And that means that if you do have some of those certifications, if you are a serious teacher, you get promoted very, very quickly. Um, I taught for basically about a year before, a little less than, I think I taught for about 10 months before going to Vietnam. And on the, my one week of training, which was they were teaching us how to use this edutainment system, uh, on the on the fourth day, they sort of came up and were like, "We're going to make you the head teacher," which in the United States is a director of studies um, mm-hmm. of of the center. And I was like, "Oh, I don't feel like that idea." Um, uh, sure. Uh, and you kind of just have to roll with it. Vietnam is very much a, a roll with the punches kind of country.
0: <laughs> also good to know. Um, so, what were your responsibilities like as a director or head teacher slash director, as opposed to just teacher?
1: Yeah. Um, so my position was very, very all encompassing. I did everything from onboarding new teachers to training those new teachers, because uh, at a lot of places in Vietnam, the training program and that when you're actual teaching is not really the same um, or it's a little bit out of date or it just isn't as applicable in a classroom. So I trained them once they had gotten done with training. I also did all of the scheduling. I did supply ordering. I worked with the Vietnamese staff to speak with parents and improve classroom management. I created content, um, especially I created a nine-month writing program that for all of our different levels. Hmm. Um, cool. I did yeah, I did meetings with other actors um, and for head teachers, facility managers, as, as we were known over there, and with upper management. It was a very, very all-encompassing position. I was also in charge of um, disciplinary action for teachers who didn't show up on time, weren't in appropriate dress, those sorts of things. I'm probationary. I was in charge of firing teachers if that became a thing. I was in charge of workshops of putting on and developing professional development workshops, which was funny because I don't have been teaching for 10
0: months. (laughs) Um, Good training, admittedly. This is true. Yeah. Good
1: training. And there are lots of resources online for people who end up in in a similar position. You don't, you know, they say create it from scratch. I would really suggest Googling it.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, keep an eye on teflhorizons.com.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Shameless plug. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Great. So any specific places you'd recommend in Vietnam, um, in terms of visiting, traveling, like even if it's just from a more tourist perspective than actual working, living, teaching perspective?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, as a tourist, I would definitely suggest da Nang, which is D-A space N-A, it might be N-N-G or just N-G.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's beautiful white sand beaches. You can go paragliding, lots of water sports. If you want to like splurge out, I say splurge out, it's probably only like $200, but if you want to go for like a week and... Basically, anytime that you're in Bali and that you're, like, super fancy and rich and can afford everything, then on a great place to do it for really cheap. Um, and it's only a day trip away from Hoi An. And Hoi An is a very gorgeous old town with these beautiful lanterns that are lit up on a canal at night. It's, it's very much a tourist attraction, but it's very worth it. And then if you're in Ho Chi Minh, I suggest going to the Kuchi Tunnels, which, especially if you're an American, is... Really important because these are the tunnels that Vietnamese fighters lived in while the Vietnam War was going on. It's a, it's a very eye opening experience and also just a very fun one. And then, if you're in Hanoi and you drink alcohol, I would suggest going to the beer corner. Watch your pockets for pickpockets because they will take your money, <laughs> but it is a very great sort of cultural experience. And, and you can Google that, it's sort of one of the top tourist attractions, and it is really worth it for at least one night.
0: Great, okay, fun advice. It's giving me wanderlust.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Is there any advice that you'd give to people who want to live and work abroad in Vietnam?
1: Um, Yeah, know the differences in the different types of working environments. So big centers, like the one that I have been talking about this entire time, is more of a party zone. It attracts a lot of backpackers, a lot of people who haven't necessarily took sort of proper TEFL certifications, but more like online one-week courses or just bought it outright. Um, these are people that maybe stopped in Vietnam for like a hot second because they ran out of mine.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: not always, of course, but there, there's a big trend. Private schools are more serious teachers. You are going to need to have a CELTA, a BA. Well, actually, you need to have a bachelor and a TEFL to work in Vietnam at all. Um, but if you want to work in a private school, showing that you are a serious teacher, you're going to, have to do a demo teach those are more like day jobs and you're teaching students in class during their school time and those are more serious teachers that is a more sort of um good place for you if you are serious about teaching and then public schools is a little bit of a mix of both um because it can be a very backpackers picking up extra slots and uh, but on the other hand you know it, it can also be serious teachers who don't want to work for private academies or private schools excuse me so Know where you're going and what your personality type is and what you are interested in having as far as your experience goes in Vietnam, and then choose um, your educational experience. Based on that. Also, you do not need to find a job before you go to Vietnam. In fact, I would suggest just going to Vietnam That's That's and then great. getting a job once you're there. It, you're going to get paid a lot more, and you're going to have a lot more options if you do it while you're there. Um, especially because it's very easy to get a tourist visa to Vietnam. You can actually just get it upon arrival, so you that don't was even my need question.
2: to. So if you arrive in Vietnam, you can get a tourist visa, and then you can you can change the tourist visa to a work visa once you get a job.
1: Yeah, you need to do a visa run, but okay. the flight to Bangkok is like two hours, and I think it's like fifty bucks. Great. Okay. Good.
2: Um, and really you can okay. just sort of, yeah.
1: yeah. When I started, you could just sort of get off in Thailand, go through customs, turn around and come back. Now, depending on how legal your company is, and that is a big if, um, you may have to stay in Thailand for like three working days. So just budget that in if you are going to just sort of arrive. But I, I do still suggest it, it because it is much easier to find a position that you're actually going to like and to find the area that you're going to want to live once you're there, especially yeah. if you want to stay in a big city. Um, especially if you want to stay in a big city and work at a big center, they are going to try to send you to a small town. But if you already have a rental contract, um, which is very easy to get and not an actual contract, if I'm being honest, it's just you talking to a Vietnamese person saying, I'll pay you this amount. And they're like, cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but if you already quote, unquote, have a rental contract, they won't send you to another place because you already paid rent. So... Those are sort of very practical things to keep in
0: mind. Great advice. Extremely helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, This probably goes very hand in hand with what we just asked you, but is there anything else you wish you'd known before going that you can tell our listeners who are maybe thinking about teaching um, or living in Vietnam?
1: Yeah. um, Besides the, the sort of practical stuff in terms of visas, be really, really honest with yourself about who you are and what you value. If you are someone that likes a lot of structure and order, things being on time, um, a lot of organization, if you like to know that there aren't going to be bug bits in your food and that like everything's going to be clean, Vietnam is not necessarily going to be the place for you. But if you are very go with the flow, if you don't mind sort of rapid changes at the last minute, if you aren't particularly bothered by just sort of doing what's required, even if the thing doesn't necessarily make sense to you. Then Vietnam might be the place to you um, or for you, excuse me. So just be very, very honest about who you are, and you know if if you still want to go to Southeast Asia and those sorts of things, like going with the flow and all of that, doesn't really sound like you. I would suggest Taiwan. Um, just as inexpensive as Vietnam, almost, uh, but a much more sort of developed big city vibe, especially in Taipei, um, and a similar ability to save money.
2: Great. We'll yeah. have to follow up with someone who's taught in Taipei, though.
0: I know, on a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that was really, really helpful, Teresa. Thank you so much. Um, it was fascinating talking about your experience, and I hope our listeners found it just as helpful. That was some very good, actionable advice, I would say. Um, and as always if you want more
2: information about traveling and teaching visit us at teflhorizons.com
0: yeah we will link to some of the resources that Teresa mentioned place names food names exciting things um, in the show notes so that you can have them in visual form if you missed any of the information here Um, and yeah stay tuned for upcoming interviews yeah thanks so much Teresa no thank you it was so good to talk to you absolutely I'm happy to be on
2: Bye. 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 Thanks for listening. Your support means so much to us. Feel free to leave a comment below if you enjoyed this and let us know what you want to hear about in upcoming episodes. If you know other teachers and travelers, we'd love for you to share this podcast with them too. And tune in this coming Tuesday for our next episode. Until then, you can find us at teflhorizons.com. Let's keep making this big world smaller by expanding horizons.